You can turn with me then to our sermon text for today, which is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We will come back to Genesis next week, next Sunday, and conclude that book. Uh, but for today, I wanted to preach on the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and going to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. When I come to a passage in a book without being in a series, it is tempting to simply preach the whole book, not know where to start, where to end. But I'll try to mostly keep to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. There's certainly more than enough in this passage alone. So let's listen to Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So the Apostle Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. O oh Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for your gospel, for the good news of salvation in the midst of darkness and sin, of temptation and of destruction, that in this dark world you have brought light to us through Jesus Christ, that we might dwell with this inheritance of the saints in light forever. We pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to be faithful and true and to be received and laid up in our hearts as a treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We rightly uh, rejoice at the birth of Christ. The birth of our Savior is not simply a story, not simply an idea, but it is a historical event that took place for the salvation of sinners. It changed things. It did things. Uh, God sent forth his son to be born of woman in the fullness of time. And there was a time that took place in which he was born. Uh, of course, before that, in which he was conceived. Before his conception, he was not man. And afterwards and ever after, he is man and God. He was born in fulfillment of the ancient promises. He was born to obtain the salvation of all who had believed in him or would believe in him. 
He was born and so inaugurated a new era in which the gospel would be proclaimed with greater light and fullness to all the nations. It wasn't long until the nations were already beginning to come as the wise men came to bear tribute to uh, the king of kings. Uh, Jesus was born and the world would be changed. Uh, Whether we got the date quite right or not, we date our dates today from the birth of Christ. It is the year of our Lord. That's what A.D. stands for. The kingdom of Christ has come in the person of Christ and continues to grow to this day. As we read in Isaiah, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Uh, He has come, a child is born, and we live in the light of his reign. He who is God of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, that is, before all ages, before time began, before time was a thing, in eternity, without beginning, not being made, by whom all things were made, yet for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and so was made man. With respect to his divinity, Jesus had two births. Did you know that? Jesus had two births. With respect to his divinity, he was born of the Father without a mother and without reference to time. He is eternally begotten of the Father, of one substance with the Father, one and the same God, perfect likeness of the Father, eternally begotten. But with respect to his humanity, he was conceived and born of a mother without a father and in time as he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became like us in all respects except for sin, bearing even our weakness and mortality and infirmities, but without sin, without the least sinful thought, our Lord was born and lived and died and rose. He has now risen in glorious immortality, and he will never relinquish our nature, but is God and man forever. Now, the Apostle Paul speaks of this great wonder in this letter to the Philippian saints. He wrote of how Christ, who was in the form of God, yet took upon himself the form of a servant, of a slave, and was born in the likeness of men. But to understand this passage, we should go back to the beginning of the chapter, which is where we started our reading. Uh, He begins with an exhortation, even an appeal, a plea. He appeals to encouragement in Christ. Do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any comfort from love? If there is any participation in the Spirit among you, any affection, any sympathy, he's appealing to these things. If you have any of this, then show it toward your pastor who is exhorting you and to one another by being of the same mind, by being of the same love by being in full accord, literally of one soul, and being of the same mind, of one mind. In other words, be unified both in affection and in your thinking. This is what would complete Paul's joy. Uh, Paul, who was a prisoner at the time in Rome, he is a prisoner under the possibility of a death sentence, although he thinks he might escape at this time, but it is a very unpleasant circumstance, but his joy would be full if he knew that the saints were of full accord. This was his desire, should be our desire too. This is what a pastor wants to see in the congregation of Jesus Christ. Those who share encouragement in Christ and who are fellow participants in the Spirit ought to be unified 
standing firm together, in agreement, bound together in mutual love, like one body with one soul, maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, uh, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is what the body of Christ ought to be. And so Paul says, complete my joy, be of one mind. But then in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, he uh, gives them an exhortation to not do something, do nothing, in fact, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. These are things that threaten the unity of the saints, that threaten to break apart the, uh, the unity of this body, of this army of the Lord, that would cause confusion and delay and uh, would break them apart so that they would not accomplish their mission. Selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is the, I, that desire to struggle to the top, pulling others down so that you might gain glory and honor and wealth and respect. Aristotle had used the word to describe demagogues and revolutionaries who sought to gain election and applause by disgraceful means. That's something not new to modern day. It's an ancient idea, this selfish ambition. It's the desire to stand out, to differ from others, simply to differ from others so that you stand out from others, that everyone else is wrong and you are right. And so people should trust you, uh, that uh, people should follow you. It's a, a contentiousness that is born out of selfish ambition, uh, a, a quarrelsomeness, a disagreement, not simply because of the truth, uh, but because you want to disagree, because you want to stand out, and you want to have no- notoriety. Paul uses this word in chapter 1, verse 17, to describe those who preached Christ from the wrong motives. They preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Uh, they had this rivalry with Paul, and they preached the gospel, therefore, to afflict him, as in, in his, afflict him in his imprisonment. And so they were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Well, Paul was glad that the gospel was being proclaimed nonetheless, but that wasn't what the motive ought to be for anything that the saints do. The, the King James Version translates it as contention or strife. Uh, and these concepts go together. It's the selfish ambition that causes contention and strife. Uh, there, there might be a type of ambition or of, of having goals and trying to reach them, which is not wrong. But this type of selfish ambition, self-seeking, um, quarrelsomeness, uh, certainly is not the spirit of Christ and also would be destructive to the unity of the body and their ability to agree and to be of one mind with one another. This exalting of oneself at the sake of others. And that goes along with the other term, conceit. Uh, literally, it's a compound word, empty glory. Empty glory. Or we might say empty pride, vain glory. Uh, the idea of conceit. Conceit is the trait of thinking too highly of yourself and therefore exalting yourself, boastfulness, pride. This would also break apart uh, the, un- unanimity, uh, the unity of the church. And so what is the solution to these things? Verses 3 through 4. Therefore, humility and love. 
Count others in lowliness of mind. Count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the opposite of selfish ambition and conceit. If you want to understand what those bad things are, com- com- tr- contrast it to counting others more significant than yourselves in lowliness of mind and humility. Uh, looking not only to your own interests, that's what selfish ambition is, only looking to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. This humility and love are the remedies, and they lead to the growth of unity and cohesion in the body of Christ. Now, as Paul exhorts then, and as he exhorts you, as Scripture now exhorts you to these things, he turns to uh, the, the great source of our unity, the one who binds us together and whom we ought to emulate, that is Jesus Christ. He appeals to the mind of Christ. In verse 5, um, it says here in the ESV, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, but most translations will put it a little differently as you have in the ESV footnote, which I also think is uh, correct. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus. That there was this mind that was in Christ Jesus that is demonstrated by the way he lived and acted, and you should be of the same mind as Christ, which makes sense if we are the body of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, and now he goes into the story, uh, the account of the incarnation. Christ manifested the mindset which you and I ought to have. He exercised this humility and love. He looked not to his only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He sacrificed himself, counting sinners even, so significant that he would take upon himself human nature and die even the death on a cross. And so verse 6 begins by saying that Christ was in the form of God. Now, this form of God is not referred to mere appearance, as if he was merely in the form of God and not God himself, but it, rather it emphasizes that he is God, but it's emphasizing his divine glory and status, because that's the theme of the passage, status and fame and glory. Well, he was in the form of God. You can't get higher than that. As God, he was in the form of God. As Calvin says, the form of God here means his majesty. As the royalty of a king as the kingness of a king is displayed by the trappings and emblems of royalty. It's easy to figure out who the king is. If you are looking around, he has the crown on, he has the robes, he has the attendants, he has his majesty. So Christ was glorious in divine majesty because he is God. He shared glory with the Father before the world existed, made mention of that in John 17. That was no little thing. God had said in Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So the Son was no other. Uh, He was one God with the Father and the Spirit, no rivalry to the Father. For Christ to be in the form of God means that he is God, that he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one divine being. He was in the form of God from before all ages. So he was at the top. He was full of glory. But Jesus did not exploit his equality with God and remain aloof. 
He stooped down to help us. He descended to us for our salvation. It's ironic that the word to, to condescend today has almost the opposite meaning of what it used to mean. Today it means like to be haughty, to look down on others. Well, the old meaning is the idea of stooping down, to, to be more familiar or equal with those who are uh, beneath you, uh, to not be haughty. Well, regardless of whether we can redeem the word or not, this is what Christ did. That though he was in the form of God, he stooped down to help us. He was not haughty, but he associated with the lowly. He partook of our flesh and blood. He did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's different ways to translate that word, a thing to be grasped. Other translations say something to be exploited, something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, The idea is that he did not treat this equality with God like some kings treat their spoils of war. The idea is, is spoil or plunder. He did not count his equality that spoils to triumph in them, to boast in them, to display them before all. He retained the equality with God, but he took the form of a servant in which this equality and this glory was veiled. He was equal with God. He was equal with the Father, had the same divine essence in its entirety. But he did not count this equality as an excuse to remain aloof from our misery, as if he would revel in his superiority, as so many men do. Verse 7, though, uh, verse 7 then it, it continues to expand on this. Rather than counting it as a thing to be used to his own advantage or exploited, he looked after the interests of others. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, something I noticed in reading this in Greek is that the word for emptied, emptied himself, uh, is the same as the first part of, of conceit. You know how I mentioned it's empty glory uh, that we are not to do things from, don't do things from conceit, vain glory, empty glory. Well, Jesus emptied himself. He made himself of, of no account. In other words, Paul contrasts human conceit and his empty glory with Christ, who is full of glory and yet emptied himself. Christ practiced the opposite of conceit and empty boasting. Though equal with God, he took the form of a servant. So how far should you and I be from puffing ourselves up in pride when Christ, who is God over all, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant? Emptying himself is the more literal translation, the idea of making himself of no no reputation, making himself of no reputation, is accurate, though, to the context. That is what it means for him to empty himself. It's not that he emptied himself of his divinity. Uh, He emptied himself. Uh, He lowered himself. He made himself nothing. It's the utter opposite of vainglory, of puffing yourself up in conceit and pride. He emptied himself, not by divesting himself of his divinity. He didn't lose his divinity. He didn't stop being God. But he added to himself humanity, humanity, uh, the form of a servant, humanity in its weakness and mortality. 
Notice also that Christ voluntarily took the form of a servant. This was the work of the triune God, neither person forcing the others. The Father sent the Son, and the Son humbled himself willingly and laid down his life for his people. The Son, who was equal with God, took up the office and duties of mediator. He made himself lower than and subject to God with respect to his human nature, so that he would become obedient uh, to do the will of his Father uh, as he was now in this position and office. He became the servant of the Lord to redeem his people, uh, to be both God and man, the mediator between the two. He came then to do his Father's will, to save the people the Father had given him. So being found in human form, Paul says, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even as he was born in a low condition to parents who were poor, who were not even home, being laid in a manger, so his death, too, was particularly low and disgraceful, that of a a robber on the cross and crucifixion being hanged on the tree. He came to save his people, to serve them by giving his life as a ransom for many. And so he was born for that purpose, partaking of our flesh and blood, that he might destroy the devil and deliver us through his death. So that is what Paul is saying in this passage, exhorting you to be of one mind, uh, to be of the same love, and, the, and to do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, to look to the interests of others, to count them more significant than yourselves, to have the mind of Christ who demonstrated these ways, who actually didn't just do what you're called to do, who went far above and beyond anything that you would be able to do, who himself was in the form of God, yet took the form of a servant and became man. So, three points of application here. First of all, Christ became man for our salvation. So, let us receive him with gratitude. Remember Paul's point. What is Christ exemplifying? He's exemplifying someone who looks to the interests of others. He became man for the interests of others. He became man, <clears throat> became man for your good, for your salvation. <clears throat> Not simply to be on earth, but to save you from your sins. He did not only think of himself. If God had not become man, all mankind would have been lost in endless woe. Humanity was corrupt and condemned. No one would be able to break out of it. We were all lost. No one would be righteous enough to come and much less save himself. Uh, can't save himself. How how would he even be able to save others? We would need help from outside. The curse then could only be lifted. It could only be lifted by being satisfied. The debt of sin would have to be paid by man, but man was unable to pay it. And so it's through this miraculous conception where God himself became man that a new beginning to the human race started. The last Adam Uh, pure from sin, uh, who is able to bear the sins of many, uh, who is able to die in man's place. The Son of God became man, that he might save us, that he might lift up human nature, that he might perform obedience to the law, 
that he might suffer its curse in our nature, that he might have fellow feelings of our infirmities, that even now he might make intercession in our nature as, as man. He became man so that he might do these things. And so sinners are engrafted into this new humanity by the Spirit and through faith. All who believe in Christ receive the gift of salvation. Their sins are laid upon him and obliterated in his death so that you are not condemned. And his righteousness is imputed to them that they might be justified and uh, righteous before God. As they are joined to Christ, the dominion of sin is broken and the image of God is restored and renewed in them. God became the son of man that we might become the children of God reconciled to him and conformed to his likeness. So, receive Christ. Receive and embrace him as your Savior. Receive and embrace him as your Lord and as your God. He came for your interest, so do not neglect it. Uh, He did this for your good, so do not refuse the gift. Do you plan to refuse your gifts tomorrow or whenever you open your presents? What if someone died for them? Uh, How much more would you eagerly receive it? Uh, Let us receive Christ who gave us everlasting life. Well, secondly, secondly, Christ, your God and Savior, humbled himself for others. So, learn from him, having the same mind. This is the idea of of imitating Christ, a theme throughout the epistle to the Philippians. I said I'm not going to preach the epistle, but one reason why I think have this mind among yourselves, as it was also in Christ Jesus, um, is the right translation, because the theme of imitation uh, is found throughout the epistle. But don't only uh, imitate Paul, you should imitate Paul, imitate others who follow the same rule, but imitate Christ, the common Savior of us all. Learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. Why should his disciples be selfish and conceited? Think like Christ. Not only what would Christ do, what would Jesus do, how would Jesus think? How would Jesus think about what you should do? Let your thinking be guided by humility and love. Your God became a baby laid in a manger. Your God slept on hay, on animal food, as a helpless infant for the good of others. It was appropriate that he lay in a manger, for he had taken on flesh that he might give it as spiritual food for the life of the world. He came as spiritual food for his creatures, for the ones he had made. This is a humbling thing that he did for their good, for our good. So do nothing from selfish ambition, contention, or conceit. Cease the desperate struggle to pull and puff yourself up and Exalt yourself. How much easier it should be for us to refrain from pride and vainglory than it was for God to make himself of no reputation and take the form of a servant. In one sense, there's really no comparison between us and Christ. We can only do a little in our imitation of him. What we are called to do is far less. And yet how hard it is. So let us meditate upon the mind of Christ. Now, thirdly, 
Christ became man and was then highly exalted. So therefore follow him with the hope of glory. Did Jesus remain of no reputation? Does Jesus have no reputation today? No, God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. He did not stay there. Having become obedient unto death, God highly exalted him above all. The Son was glorified with the glory that he had had before creation. While he remains man, this God-man is now exalted above all creation in heaven, worshipped by all, enthroned at the Father's right hand, he is in glory. So he humbled himself for us, he also was exalted for us. This should be encouraging to you as well as you seek to have the mind of Christ. He was exalted for your good. He reigns for your good. He exercises power in his salvation. It's good that he reigns in heaven because he is your savior. He exercises power for your salvation and the advance of his kingdom. And he was raised as our head. We are heirs with him. The way of Christ leads to glory. You don't have to be desperate to seek the praise of men over your brother or sister. You have a far surpassing glory that awaits through Jesus Christ. While we will never become God, yet we will be glorified with him, reflect his glory, and reign with him, even judging angels. In this life, we are raised with him to justification and newness of life. After death, our souls will be raised to heaven in a closer fellowship with Christ. At the resurrection, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, and we will reign with him. So you do not need to be conceited or vainglorious. We have a substantial glory, a not empty glory, a full glory that awaits that we receive as a gift from our God and Savior. And so a glory awaits those who remain in Christ, who endure to the end. Let us follow our Lord Jesus then, looking to him. So be of the same mind, have the same love, be of full accord and of one mind. Now seek to attain that. That is something that we work towards as we have Christian fellowship one with another. What is it that you have in common? It is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church that binds us as a people. If you rest upon Christ for your salvation, have also his mind in and among you. Remember his humility, the meekness of your God, his love, as you remember his conception and his birth. Join with me in prayer. O oh Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you for your love for us, and that seeing our misery and our, our woe, that you took on our likeness, that you Uh, took on a true human nature, body, and soul, that you did not come as one invincible, but as one in our weakness, bearing our sins, despised by men, and uh, went even willingly to uh, the death on a cross. We thank you for this, and we ask that you would help us to receive this in faith, that we would hold fast to you, you would help us renew in us this mind, this image, this likeness of your humility and love. 
that we might have this together. And so, with one mind, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. We pray that you would do this in this congregation and in your church at large, in the visible church throughout the world, as a sign of, our, of your salvation, that uh, you are the Savior, uh, and that uh, you are reigning at the Father's right hand. We pray that you would bring us to this glory, and that we might live with you and the Father and the Holy Spirit uh, forever, uh, one God and our God. Amen.